0: Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. This week's podcast is the third session of a wonderful event we had here recently called Draining the Swamp Summit. That's right, Draining the Swamp Summit. Fittingly, that happened in the great state of Texas, downtown Austin in our wonderful building, not in Washington, D.C. And we were privileged to have with us our friends from the American Principles Project, the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, and this panel, which you're about to hear, with former Congressman Tim Camp, now President of the Heartland Institute. If you're interested not only in why we're talking about draining the swamp, but how we're going to drain the swamp, you will enjoy this week's episode. Well, good afternoon again. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. hope you're enjoying lunch. <coughs> it's a real pleasure to host this entire event today, and a real pleasure to listen to the wisdom from the panelists in our first session, and of course, always a pleasure to hear the Attorney General of Texas. I think our staff members will probably move this podium back just a little bit so that I can give the evil eye to these folks on this side of the theater. No, just kidding. You might want to give me the evil eye. Thanks, Clint. A couple of announcements before we get started. We have a live stream audience today, so if you're joining us virtually, we appreciate that. I'll also say that if you're not aware, and you probably aren't because it's been a soft launch, Texas Public Policy Foundation is now doing a weekly podcast called The Foundation. And it's, the purpose of it is not just to talk about TPPF matters, and for that matter, not just to talk about Texas matters, but to talk about the foundational principles of the conservative movement. And there are many excellent voices in the movement, and what we want to do is feature those voices. I can tell you that one of the heroes for me and my wife in modern America is Dr. Tim Huelscamp. He's a courageous former member of Congress, courageous head of one of our fellow think tanks, one of the truly important organizations in America. And we are grateful that we're beginning to do more and more work together. So Tim, thanks for being with us. A little bit more about Tim Huelscamp. He is a Kansan and earned his, I say that with great compliment.
1: <coughs> hook'em. Used to be part of Texas. That's correct. See, <laughs> I, I am from I, southwest I, Kansas and the Texas flag flew over my home county and farm, so we, we have a connection. We got you well prepped. Yeah, absolutely. Nice, nice job. You see, this audience is going to love you.
0: <laughs> he earned his PhD in political science from American University, so you, what you're going to hear from Dr. Hewell's camp is not only, believe it or not, what's important from academics, being one myself, but also having lived the experience of trying to drain the swamp before it was fashionable. So what we're going to do today is hopefully have a wide-ranging conversation. Tim's going to guide us through some of the things he's seen in his experience as a congressman, for that matter, as a farmer, as a Kansan, as an American. And what we're hopeful that we'll be able to do by the end of this session, even before we get to your Q&A, is give you a sense of some of the policy areas where you might be involved, where you might be able to take some action. Because ultimately, if all we do is talk about problems and sort of academic solutions, (coughs) we're not serving the best interest of the organizations where we work. So Dr. Hewelskamp, thanks for being with us. Absolutely, pleasure to be here, thank you. You bet. So let's talk about the extent of the problem of the administrative state. Just to frame that for us, We've had a recent election where, among other factors that went into the reasons the victor won, one of them was that he put his finger on a long-standing frustration of Americans of different demographic groups, and that is that they felt increasingly powerless, and and even over their elected officials. That there are these people, perhaps well-intentioned, serving in agencies making administrative rules that they had little control over. and I'm just hopeful that maybe in this first part of our conversation you can help us with the, con- the experience you've had, give us some insight into the extent of that problem. So you're not required to be an optimist yet <laughs> when you answer that question.
1: Well, you say draining the swamp. That's uh, right. The swamp has uh, yet to be drained. Um, you go to any of these federal agencies and they, the appointees, if they have their positions, and plenty of them mm-hmm. The Plenty of those positions are still vacant. Uh, you literally have hundreds and thousands of people that are still there. And they're always going to be there, civil servants. And most of them haven't. It reminds me of a story of a, a home builder in Kansas, or a gentleman ran the Home Building Association in, in Kansas, had a meeting at the EPA. And the meeting room was at the back of one of the big EPA buildings. As you go through there, every other cubicle had a sign, Save the Whale, well, Save the Seal, Save Everything but save the babies, that's a different one. <laughs> so, uh, everything. And, but the point being is there's a certain ideological pit. That's why they're there. That's right. why they work at the EPA. And I'll stay in my frustration six years in Congress. Uh, the Attorney General uh, lamented the fact that Congress often would say they were concerned about that, but they wouldn't do anything. They were concerned about DACA, but they went ahead and funded that. They were concerned about the Waters of the U.S. Rule, which would involve every... Puddle. Every puddle that's there overnight would suddenly become a federal jurisdictional matter. And but Congress went ahead, Republican control, and funded the EPA every time. Well, can't we defund their efforts on WOTUS? Well, we could, but we didn't. Can we defund their efforts on DACA? Well, we could, but we didn't. On and on we went. So it's a, it's a function of the entire swamp. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was looking, uh, thinking ahead to this uh, talk, uh, a former colleague of mine. Congressman from uh, Colorado, Ken Buck, has a book he released in April. I'm sure that made him a lot of friends around Washington, D.C., in Congress, to say, hey, we need to drain the swamp in, co- in Congress. And uh, we can get into that a length of what goes on and why members of Congress say one thing at home but can't seem to be get, get anything done in in Washington, D.C. But a little more background. American University, by the way, is in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was in there there in the early 90s, and uh, somehow, some way, they let me out <laughs> with a PhD and I went back home to farm in the real world and, and got into state politics and, but I will tell you I served 14 years in the state senate and my colleagues after I went to Washington I'd come back to Kansas every weekend by the way and they said what did you think about Washington? Is it everything you expected? I said oh yes and much worse. <laughs> and after six years ladies and gentlemen I saw very little positive changes even if we Republican control yeah, because of the administrative state. If you're discussing you know, you got a multi-trillion-dollar budget, and you discuss 10 billion every year. Uh, and uh, w- what about the trillions that are still there? And uh, it, it was so easy. I, and I will have to give credit. We're live streaming, so that's dangerous. But uh, President Barack Obama ran circles around Republican leadership in Washington. You know, on one hand, he could get him distracted on all kinds of things. Meanwhile, he's pushing what is DACA, clean power plan. How Gore. How long ago did he lose? Thank goodness, it's hard to remember when he lost. His philosophy and his principles on environmental issues still run the EPA today. And, and Pruitt is trying to undo those, but that takes time. By the way, he's doing an excellent job. I think he's probably the best appointee of the entire administration following through what he promised to do. So uh, that administration is doing a great job. But the endangerment finding, by the way, which says CO2 will kill us all. Which, by the way, I'm a farmer. I love CO2. I'll be up front. I just love it. Uh, that is still the, the letter of law in America. That, it, that's the basis for the Clean Power Plan and numerous other things. So it will take some time. Uh, but I will say in the EPA, we see that corner turned. But uh, today, Pruitt's under investigation by his own attorney general. Why? Because he installed a, a super secret phone booth in, in his office to make certain EPA staffers wouldn't listen into his private calls and try to throw lawsuits, I presume, and undo everything he's doing. That's the swamp. And it's, it's hard. You've got to be uh, loud about it and pushing back, and that's what I see in this administration. So a little bit of flavor on the EPA side and plenty of other issues I think we'll, we'll talk about, Kevin. Sure. Well, thanks for that. I, I think you've given us sufficient reason for pessimism <laughs> in your first... That's it's also a sufficient reason to understand why I'm not in Congress anymore. (laughs) So, by the way, under the DACA issue, uh, you know, here we have states like Kansas and Texas and plenty of others fighting this issue. We had a few members of Congress that said, you know what, we shouldn't fund DACA, you know, led by Steve King and numerous others. Mm -hmm. I think that was in the the spring of, uh, I think, 2015. And uh, so we led the charges. Why would we fund the president's? We just won the Senate. Why would we give money to fund DACA? Remember, after the elections were won, we got a majority in the Senate. Soon after that election is when the president said, no, I'm gonna rewrite the law on immigration. What do you do about it, Congress? Says, we have to fund every one of those things. So actually, it, it, it turned so much that about 30 conservatives, myself included, had television and radio ads ran against us by Republican leaders in Washington that we were holding up funding of the military over a little thing called the Constitution. (laughs) And by the way, those ads weren't very effective, by the way, but that shows you what the swamp would do. They're so willing just to keep things going and not make any changes, at least from the congressional perspective as well as the agency perspective. Mm -hmm. So what about the role of Congress in
0: at least contributing to that problem, if they didn't make the problem? And, and, And the context for that question is almost an academic diagnosis of that. And I might want to view that historically. You will want to view that from the standpoint as a political scientist. In other words, if we had 100 students in a lecture hall here, and they asked you, Dr. Hewell's camp, how did this happen? How would you respond?
1: It's kind of a question I often get to, when I was a state legislator as a member of Congress, I'd have young folks come up to me and say, uh, said, Tim, That's in Kansas, they still called you by your first name, which is much better than what they called me in Washington, uh, by the way. But they'd say, hey, you know, one day I want to be in politics. What do I need to do? uh, That's the wrong question I ask, if you want to be in American politics and understand our founders. i often say, well, first you need a job. Then I also suggest, uh, you know, you might actually want to run a business. You actually might uh, want to have a family and might understand life before you get in politics. But so much of Politics, folks in there are populated by people, that's their first question. They want to get in there uh, instead of living life. And our founders, they did all these things before they got in politics. They didn't wake up at 17 and say, hey, I'm going to be president of the United States. And, and uh, I don't know when our President Obama did, but he kind of had that thought. He's going to be president one day. And but that, that's the wrong perspective. So it becomes an in and of itself. And so even if, uh, even if you have the right intentions, the right principles, whether you're in the state level or, or the federal level, it's, it's how much you want to keep the job. And uh, if you're not willing to give up the job, you're not going to do a good job at it. And I would say in my humble opinion, most members of Congress in both parties, they would never give up their job. They would choose to give up the principle before they give up the job. And, and that, that's on both sides. So at the end of the day. Presidents know that. They know Congress is toothless, and I think President Trump has figured that out, that Congress is more interested in keeping the job, then why would Congress give up the authority? And I, I toyed with that the first five or my six years up there. Say, if they would ever figure out that it was all about power and control, that they'd want to keep that. But no, it's, it's really not so much about power and control, it's just keeping the job and the position. A, 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 and, t- and that is certainly not what our founder, founders intended. Now, think about the founders, uh, and think about what they're writing in the Constitution. You know, and uh, it's not taught in most public schools today, but they wrote the Constitution this way because they were imposing the Constitution, think about this, on themselves. They knew they'd be the future, they were the current future leaders. But think about it, they didn't even trust themselves. They didn't trust themselves. They were going to live under that. And by the way, the first article of the Constitution has to do with the courts, no, the president, oh, no, it, does what it deals with Congress. That's not an accident. Uh, they understood that was supposed to be the preeminent branch. And, uh, but that's uh, been lost along the way. Uh, but in a sense, it's, it's still this whole thing like uh, in Ken Book's, Ken Buck's book talks about it. Draining the swamp needs to start in the congressional level as well. There's just too many folks up there that have spent 20 years to get there, and then once they get there, they can't figure out why they're even there anymore. Mm-hmm. Same way getting committee chairmanships. Uh, uh, Peter Schweitzer, anybody heard of Peter Schweitzer? Clinton Cash and, and plenty of other things. He wrote a book called Extortion. He talked about Congress, and he talks about uh, it's absolutely true. What's the price tag on getting on the Ways and Means Committee in the House? Let me ask that again. Is there a lot of them ask it this way Is there a price tag to be on the House Ways and Means Committee? Hmm. Absolutely. What does it say? I don't know. Back when Peter wrote the book, it was about a million dollars in campaign fundraising. And you take that campaign fundraising and you, you give it to leadership. And then leadership uses that to elect more people just like you. And, and then it becomes a very top-down process, and then Obama runs circles around this. Uh, around this. But Peter outlines under both parties that, that money runs the game. And he, he outlined specifically, and I actually helped contribute to uh, some of the information in, in the book, that uh, bills would come. Here's an example. We. The agenda in Congress was set up about once a week. The majority leader on a Friday would uh, send us out and say, here, here are the bills we're going to consider in Congress next week. This is a Republican Congress, by the way. And I'd get home after voting, jump on a plane, get home, see my family in the real world like 5, 6 o'clock at night. Then about Friday evening, a few hours later, we'd get the agenda for next week of 50 or 60 or 70 bills that might be considered, many of them on Monday. How, where did they come from? Why are they on there? I don't know where they came from. There was no advance notice other than Friday will come back on Monday. And, can, and, and Peter outlines in this book is, under both parties, if you were the special interest that did well enough at a fundraiser the week before, the week before that, your bill would come up on the agenda on the calendar. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is the swamp. That's the Congressional Swamp, the one I, uh, I'm most familiar with. And that, that is still, still going on today. And uh, on my way out, I, uh, you know, they have this process in the House in, uh, in which on Mondays when folks are flying back, they have these uh, very, uh, uh, well, most debates. Oh, by the way, most debates in Washington are superficial. You think you, you know that, right? <laughs> I often say it's all theater in Washington and usually very bad theater. <laughs> it's not even very good at that. So, but in the House, the debates are even more limited. But on Monday, they have a very limited debate where uh, it's 10 minutes on both sides. And it's amazing how often both sides agree. You have the Democrat and the Republican leadership agree that we shouldn't do anything about the administrative state. And, uh, and then we'll vote on 40 or 50 votes sometimes in, on a Monday evening the first time back. And, uh, and those would get supermajority, and then they could rush them through. So uh, my final few weeks, I said, you know, I don't like that anymore. <laughs> so if one person just stands up and says, you know, I call for a vote on this, uh, all of a sudden uh, they can't do that anymore. Same thing in the Senate. And so I did that a few times. That's the way you make friends as you're leaving uh, in both the House <laughs> and the Senate. I think I learned that from uh, Senator Cruz, a friend of mine, uh, about standing up. But what that does show that despite what I think is corruption there and uh, years-long corruption of both parties and, and just the swamp and the creatures of the swamp is you still have cases where one man or one woman can actually change the direction, change the debate, and actually make a difference, which is, that is the American spirit. And, uh, and, and that's what still makes us different, that we can still make a difference. So when the young folks come to me, I say, hey, uh, this is the resume. You should have a real life before you get in politics. Uh, but if you're focused and based on those principles, you can go and, and make a difference. And I will say, as an aside, this is one reason I'm at the Heartland Institute. We are a national think tank, but we work in nearly every state of America. Because we believe, understand, that most of the action, definitely most of the good action, will happen in the state of Texas, the state of Kansas, and every other state, and not in Washington, D.C. And we've got a bunch of initiatives on that, and we can talk about that later, Kevin. Sure. It reminds me of one of many
0: comments that Alexis de Tocqueville made in the 1820s about Americans. And that is, it doesn't really matter what the political system is. In other words, what we might call the structure. What really matters is the virtue of the citizens themselves. And so we can sit here all afternoon and with very good reason cite all of the examples of how our freedom is altered in a negative way by the administrative state, by Washington. But it all comes back to, I would argue, to a societal and cultural challenge, right? And, and that's a way that for people who are listening to you very rightly, very accurately, list problems with the administrative state that you've experienced, can figure out how they themselves participate in the solution. So I want to come back to that, but I, I want folks to know that we're going to do a good job of beating up the administrative state, because it needs to be beaten up and the swamp needs to be drained. But really, ultimately, this is sort of something to be laid on our feet. So with that in mind, were there any victories when you were in Congress, whether led by you or someone else, whether large or small, that give us some hope that this can be fixed and maybe some model of how it can be fixed?
1: Were there any victories, uh, there's a University of San Antonio professor, I don't know which one it is, uh, accused me of helping elect Donald Trump uh, <laughs> because I tweeted something about King, King Obama. <laughs> so Really? I mean, that, that's, that's how you, you get a little tension in Washington, but that's the case. We had elected a king, and we had elected representatives that weren't doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's always that that, that danger and, and that possibility. So I think. Uh, I, I Laying that out, and the American people, you know, made that choice. It says uh, we're, we're going to go a different route, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can never quite figure out why people vote the way they do, and uh, whether they did that because of their frustration about whatever. It, it's, it's, uh, but certainly populism is alive and well again, mm-hmm. and I think Donald Trump tapped into that. And uh, members of my former, you know, colleagues, many of them were on the wrong side of that. Who would have thought a Speaker of the House would stand up? Before the election say don't vote for president our presidential nominee or at least suggest that and today, and yesterday Donald Trump tweeted says hope he stays as Speaker of the House <laughs> these are these are these are interesting times so but what it gets back to on, a, on particular issues that we I think sometimes we get the, the government we, we deserve mm-hmm. and the government we pick and uh, but what I've seen on, on, particularly on some 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 minor issues, I guess. Here's what I see is probably the biggest victory: the impact of constituents is still very real. Mm-hmm. And we'd be sitting in a Republican conference generally on a Thursday or a Friday before we wrapped up the week, and um, a couple times, some big issues would come up. And and uh, in, in groups on the outside, with conservative groups, generally would start generating phone calls to Republicans, say, "Don't do this bad thing. Go do this good thing." And they'd walk in, uh, my my former colleagues, and say. Oh, my God, I'm getting all these phone calls. And you would say, okay, well, what do you think about that? Like, now I'm going to have to do what they told me to do. Let me repeat that. Now I'm going to have to do what they told me to do. Two things here. One, uh, do I really have to do what they tell me to do? Two, they do take orders if they think they're going to lose their job. So just a couple days of phone calls. it It doesn't take many calls to keep a congressional office's phone line busy. It doesn't make a difference and they're still responding to what what people want. So part of our job here is making sure they know what we want. Don't assume that. And and by the way, the way the system is set up, they don't take calls and worry about anybody outside their congressional district. And they're not supposed to put together this national database, it's all based on constituents. And so yeah, we're gonna necessarily lose plenty of Folks are never gonna get our phone calls. Mm-hmm. But for those that, I'm saying as a Republican, on the Republican side, we can light up their phone calls, their, their phones, and, and do make a difference. So that was always heartening to me, mm-hmm. that if enough people called in, they, they'd be, they they do the right thing. I think the closest we got to a victory against the uh, administrative state is when we had the shutdown in 2013. Mm-hmm. And uh, the standoff lasted, I can't remember how many, two or three weeks. And uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating time in, in terms of uh, the political theater and the folks that were making it. And so remember that? Remember Obamacare? We were all opposed to that as Republicans. Remember that? That was the days when they really were opposed to that. We were really going to do something about it. And uh, we were going to defund it, take the money away. At the end of the day, it was fully funded. It was fully funded. And at the end of the day, as I predicted in July, when they had the votes to do it, they couldn't repeal it. Mm-hmm. And uh, But what I want to tell you, one thing that, that is hopeful, moving forward I'm at the Heartland Institute, among other reasons, is every state now has the opportunity. Your state of Texas has the opportunity, and you're doing it already, Texas Public Policy Foundation is helping lean on this. Go to your governor, and your state Medicaid director, your state legislature said, get us out of Obamacare. Give us a waiver. Get us out of all these Medicaid uh, strings from Washington, D.C. Let us take control of our healthcare destiny in, in, in your own state. Mm-hmm. And so. What I do see is not that Congress is going to do, I don't think they're going to do anything about Obamacare. Frankly, they're very likely to beef up the the funding and the subsidies of the exchanges in exchange for some votes for a couple uh, senators from the Northeast on a tax bill. They're going to put more money on Obamacare. Uh, But what we need to do right now is go in today, go into the uh, Health and Human Services offices, hey, you know, we want to require every Texan that wants to be on Medicaid and is able to work, should actually go look for a job. Wow. That's a novel concept. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and they, they say they're going to approve that. You know, but here's, here's the secret that even HHS is not ready, ready and willing today. Any state could go in and make this request, and it has to come through the legislature and go through the governor. Uh, it has to be passed as a bill. They could go in and say, hey, I want to repeal the individual mandate. I want to repeal the employee mandate. I want to reinstitute high-risk pools which, by the way, worked before Obamacare and were made illegal under Obamacare. You could actually get rid of 90% of Obamacare through a waiver. Again, it's a Mother May-I deal and I understand that. But there is a Mother May-I that should be willing to do that. And I've been uh, pretty surprised. Most. Very few states have even talked about doing that. That's one thing we've been promoting at the Heartland is to say go in and challenge the administration, challenge Washington, say hey, you said you get rid of Obamacare, it's obviously not gonna happen, so let Texans get rid of it. Let Kansans get rid of the mandate and go back mm-hmm. on, our, on our way. I don't know the specific numbers in, in, in Texas from my home state of Kansas, think about this. Under the high-risk pool in Kansas, we were, we were insuring over 300 high-risk individuals, the highest-risk <coughs> individuals in the entire state. They couldn't get insurance everywhere and they mandated coverage under them. Their premiums three years ago are lower today than the average Obamacare exchange premium. So look what we succeeded in doing raising everybody's premiums including those that had the highest risk in kids, And, you, and they, made it by, they did that by making high risk pools illegal. You could go in today as the state of Texas and say, hey, and uh, we want to start those again and, and do it in a, a state-centered manner consistent with, uh, with states' rights. Let's, let's get that done. So why do you think so few states will do that? Why didn't they do that? I think they thought
0: Congress would do something mm-hmm. about Obamacare. And, uh, oh, come on, I wanted to be more pessimistic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make Okay, I well, wanted here's to a more pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're working on this, again, this Medicaid waiver project. We've engaged an outside consultant group that helps states write these waivers, and they're, they're very bureaucratic, and we get that. You shouldn't be mother, may I? Uh, that's, but that's what we're stuck at. Why? Uh, according to this consultant, out of all the state Medicaid directors, there's one for every state... Mm-hmm. Probably 99 to 100% of them are socialist. <laughs> yeah, that's where I was going. These are the folks that are running the system. Assist- but at the end of the day, they respond to the Texas legislature right. and the governor. They can direct them to do that, I, and I don't think they are in every state, but that was the opinion. These are folks that for 60, since 1965 have decided big government, big government healthcare is going to solve our problems. And uh, so what I'm suggesting here is draining the swamp, basically is please get permission from the swamp, and, and I'm not expecting them to do anything good other than maybe a little tax reform here in the next week. Sure.
0: If there's ever a time for us as states to ask the mother may I question, it would be now. Right, I And where I'm, I was yep. going with my pessimism was that I would make the claim and offer a lot of evidence that state governments, even those in culturally conservative states, have become part of the swamp problem because of the amount of federal funding that flows into state capitals oh absolutely
1: absolutely I've uh, said uh, many a day on the, the floor of the Kansas State Senate and said well why are we doing this well there's 10 million the numbers are smaller in Kansas by the way <laughs> the, oh we'll get 10 million dollars from the feds if we do this really so what do we give up in exchange for that was oh, just free kind of kind of free money, and that's in Medicaid, that's in your transportation stuff, that's certainly in education as well. And, and by the way, if we wanna win the cultural war and restore what our founders intended, you've gotta cut the strings to Washington on education. Yeah. yeah and and, and yeah. we've got the right secretary, but mm-hmm. members of Congress on this issue on education, Before I left, uh, you think about the politics of this, so you you had all the members of Congress that were Republicans saying they didn't like President Obama on so many different things. Uh, But right before he left, they they re-upped No Child Left Behind, gave it a new name, dusted it off and gave it back to the American people and said, that's good for another five years. Mm -hmm. Now, why would you do that if you were hoping for a Republican president with a Republican Congress? And I we were saying, wait, wait, stop, stop. No, they went ahead and re-upped it. So No Child Left Behind was re-upped with a Republican Congress and says, we're gonna keep doing the same thing. And so for five years, so, but Secretary DeVos, you know, again, I think in case she brings in two or three folks, I think she's doing all, all she can do. Mm-hmm. But members in Congress on this issue that, that run these committees, they, they really don't wanna change anything, K through 12 education. They're, in a way, they, 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 they believe that at the end of the day, they know better. It reminds me of a story. I was in the in the state senate. We were debating Medicaid issues and the regulations of nursing homes, and um, and I I represent a very rural area and. and I remember a gal, a uh, senator from another area, and I were debating the regulations of state nursing homes, uh, why we didn't need a, a new regulator to take care of those and, and, uh, and, and why folks need to be personal responsibility and their families engaged and, and, and the senator said, well, I've got my mom and dad are in a nursing home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, well, you do this as nice as you can to send Senate floor. Well, don't you ever go check on them? <laughs> don't you ever go check on the nursing home yourself? Why are you wanting me to do that for you or hire somebody to do that? So, and at the end of the day, that passed, but that's the debate that takes place in state legislators well, all the time. They don't want to be personally responsible because oftentimes Americans don't want to be personally re- responsible. It does and come back to we have to them us. challenge them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, it does. Particularly on K through 12 education. I mean, you, you never turn your kids over to, uh, you know, we worry every day about, well, who's our babysitter going to be? But do we ask who our teacher is of our kids? And, and babysitters, we want the government to pick that as well, so it comes down to it. So, you know, you, you have this, uh, this, uh, this tendency, and it's, in a way, it's, it's getting worse. But it is nice to know, despite what happened in Washington yesterday, at least the internet's still up. Because remember, uh, <laughs> if, it was gonna end today if, uh, if we restored it to a, a rule two years ago. So there's always, always hope, but uh, isn't that strange? We celebrate the fact Guy did what he said he was going to do. And that is stunning in Washington. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that's oftentimes what conservatives would do in the, in the Republican conference, stand up and say, well, let's just do what we promised to do. Well, really, do we really wanna do that now? And so I mean, it's very pessimistic, uh, but it also is hopeful that uh, when you have federal leadership and state leadership that is willing to say enough is enough, we have the folks in the right offices today, and I like my, fr- my friends in, at OMB, uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney. I mean, if you, if you want to believe in states' rights and take control of your destiny, you've got a friend there. And so now is the time to step up. I know Texas Pol- Policy Foundation is doing but in so many of these areas, but education is probably the, the most frustrating area in which, oh my gosh, and that's when we're talking about the next generation, that's probably where we've fallen short the sure. most. And, and Heartland, if, if you don't know, has just been the
0: leader for a long time in education policy. Before we move off from, from education to some other issues, we talked about K-12 education. Higher education has been dramatically affected by the over-involvement of the federal government. Would you frame that for us and maybe posit a couple of solutions? I'm thinking about student
1: loans yeah. in particular. Well, the, uh, the House Education <coughs> Committee passed a bill, I think, a couple days ago, and the chairwoman noted that after I don't know, nine loan forgiveness programs and 16 student loan programs and everything, we still, oh well, wait a minute, maybe that's the problem, that we have too much federal involvement. Uh, but uh, it, it'll be very difficult to have folks in Washington on the Republican or Democrat side, they, they, they don't want it to go that route. They they mm-hmm. still want to control uh, from top down. And yeah. uh, so, so what's the solution? The state's got to step up and, and uh, you know, even like the, the bathroom, bathroom issue. I was one of the few members of Congress that actually said, well, Mr. President, I don't think you have a right to tell my 112 school districts what to do. And so I, I, I did something you probably wasn't supposed to do. I wrote a letter to every superintendent and tried to find every school board member and just thought I'd let you know the president has no authority to tell you what to do with your bathrooms. <laughs> and uh, you think, well, what's the response? Most of the superintendents, either didn 't respond or they ran the media and says oh we we, we disagree
0: mm-hmm.
1: we disagree you know and uh, and that 's when you know you have a problem at the state level plus at the federal level and so he was echoing what uh, what uh, you know the the liberal control of our schools what 's going on here so that that will be difficult, but you know I think Donald Trump tapped into it when he talked again and again about common core and and what that reflects, and there 's so much surrounding that issue, and I think Donald Trump is excellent at taking. A lot of thoughts, grabbing some words and packing them together, and that reflects much more than Common Core and much less than Common Core and a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't think he ever had anything to do with Common Core It has nothing to do with his life and his background, but he understood what it meant, and it meant people are frustrated about their schools, yeah. and we can do better. And so Heartland for the last three decades has been promoting school choice, some types of savings accounts, a way to, to put mom and dad back in charge. And if we don't do that, at the end of the day, I mean, we will lose, I think, every other battle.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's the, the problem in, in K-12 education is the same problem as the problem in higher education, which is the same problem in healthcare, which is that mom and dad are not in charge of where the money flows in the decisions based in health care, on schools, and for students who are taking out loans, college students who are taking out loans. The federal government has become the dependency state that handles that for you. We don't even allow private providers to do that. As as many people in this room know, prior to coming to the foundation, I led my college in Wyoming to reject federal student loans and grants. And I remember a couple of my board members asking me, Kevin, on what principle are we making this decision? They were with me. They were just testing me. I said, well, I grew up with the concept that if there's a string from the federal government, you should cut it. (laughs) And the reason for that is not to be obstinate, because there is a proper role for government. But any time we remove the consumer from the purchase price, we remove the consumer from being the most important person, most important source of accountability. We've done it in healthcare, we've done it in higher ed, we've done it in K through 12. Not surprisingly, not coincidentally, the quality of all three of those services has declined. So I'm hopeful that, as you say, the, the president will continue to fight on this, 140 characters or less. We've, we've all learned that, and I'm grateful. Frankly, we're grateful at the foundation, even on matters where we, we might not be entirely synced up. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of other issues, just kind of looking ahead. We're told that shortly after the new year in Washington, DC, that the big emphasis will be on entitlement reform. That excites us, not just because that's the proper attitude toward that policy, but because ultimately, we believe in limited government and liberty because we believe that the last 70 years of federalizing almost everything has undermined the, de- the dignity of the human person. And I can think of no better example of that than K-12 education or the entitlement programs. Some of them well-intentioned, no doubt, but they're really terrible in implementation. Give us some sense of how we might get engaged from a think tank perspective, from the perspective of everyone in the audience listening and to participate in that, because my speculation is that there's a chance with the president's leadership on that, that we might make some progress.
1: You want to be a pessimist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a chance in heck they'd ever take up real Medicare reform yeah. or real Social Security reform. Social Security is really easy to fix. Mm-hmm. You, you, tur- you turn a few dials and uh, you raise the retirement age and you, you know, we could go to the private savings, that would be excellent as well. I just don't see they're going to do that, but mm-hmm. uh, with with caveat, we talked about Medicaid. Mm-hmm. That is the entitlement that can be changed with absolutely no congressional approval. Mm-hmm. They can do that through a waiver process where states can apply and say, hey, can I reform the system? And uh, that's the, the entitlement I think can change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other two, I just don't see that happening, particularly after the uh, election in Alabama. The point is, you gotta have 60 votes on yeah. any entitlement change. I don't, you know, they can barely get 50 to do a tax reform, and uh, they're, they're struggling to probably get 51 and get that done. So I don't, don't see that happening. I don't know mm-hmm. if you, I could even see the House Republican conference going through. And, you know, I've uh, helped author with, um, well, when Dr. Price was still there, uh, the, temporarily the secretary of HHS, and, and Jim Jordan and, and Senators Cruz and the, and the Senate we all had our entitlement reform bills and just don't see them going anywhere in, in my opinion uh-huh. but at the end of the day what I do see with the Medicaid as, as an option again states can call go in submit a request to the Trump administration has nothing to do with Congress and get it approved to impose work requirements, impose uh, uh, premiums and cost sharing all these kind of things that we've done in insurance trying to avoid this third party problem. That's the problem, somebody else is paying the bill. I've got teenagers, I know how that works. <laughs> <The long laughs> think about that, somebody else is paying the bill, and we need to fix that, and uh, mm-hmm. so on that side, I, I think it's Medicaid, but not Medicare or mm-hmm. Social Security, but one way, one thing the Heartland is working on that has an impact, I think, on all these has to do with uh, potentially uh, reform of the Food and Drug Administration, Yeah. and we just had a, uh, uh, a day on this uh, putting together a proposal. Today, in order to approve a new drug, it basically takes, depending on the, the numbers, anywhere from 10 to 15 years. 10 to 15 years. Yeah. My mom was uh, diagnosed with uh, an illness that uh, many old folks in this, uh, older folks in this country have. The answer for her is maybe 10 or 15 years. What's the price tag? $2.6 billion to get it through that system. And uh, 10 to 15 years, 2.6, let me put this in context. In uh, December of last year, Congress, in their great generosity with your money and your kids' money, your grandkids' money, decided to authorize a massive amount for uh, Joe Biden's moonshot on cancer. Remember that? How much did they authorize? $1.8 billion. They were so proud of themselves. That will buy you one drug, maybe. Folks, cancer isn't going to be solved with one drug. Uh, But so much of our Medicare, Medicaid, and, and our costs throughout the entire healthcare system has to do with the expensive nature of trying to get through the FDA. And there are mm-hmm. folks in this room trying to figure out how do you, you make that happen. I mean, this is a way we could really bring costs down by uh, uh, reforming the FDA and finding a way to get through bureaucracy. FDA, their current uh, state, they were basically created in 1962 when John F. Kennedy was president. And they still operate basically in the same manner. Mm. And here, here's one thing that, uh, that, that I wonder about that, uh, how this goes by, and, uh, but there's a, an, uh, the head of the oncology division, I, I, uh, I won't say his name, because uh, I don't want to create difficulties trying to reform the FDA, but you can look it up. A couple years ago, again, this is the top gentleman that approves cancer drugs. And it, this was in the New York Times, so it has to be true. <laughs> oh, it was elsewhere, it was elsewhere. But he approved a drug because his wife had cancer. The drug that was waiting. Why did he prove it? Because his wife needed it. It wasn't for compassionate use, so he grabbed a drug that was waiting and pulled it forward just to make sure. Today he still speaks on behalf of the FDA. He's still lauded in the uh, by various groups that only he did the right you know, at the end of the day, this shows you that it's I think that's wrong. Yeah. You should do that for everybody pulling these drugs up if we could do that. So this is one case where you could lower the cost of so many of our, of our programs and, and do that in a way that uh, actually makes sense and uses, uses the marketplace rather than, than the swamp, trying to because uh, right now I, I see the FDA is controlled, been captured by a few major companies, And this is one thing the president does get. You know, he uh, he probably appointed a drug task force, he's talking about doing that, he tweets about it regularly, and I do know it as cabinet meetings, he says, we got to do something about the high cost of drugs. If you go to Japan today, they they, uh, they reformed their version of the FDA a couple years ago based on a model actually put together by a gentleman that, that works with the Heartland Institute for regenerative medicine. I mean, they're a very aging society. We don't want to end up like Japan, ladies and gentlemen, you know, if you... Uh, If you don't have children, you don't have families, you eventually have a very aging society and they have no immigration there as well, that's another issue, and they're they're a very aging society. But they have changed their system, so they believe they can get drugs through in four years that would take ten years here. Now, I would like to have any politician at any level say, no, just go to Japan if you want your pharmaceuticals for arthritis. No, that's, so we're gonna keep the pressure on that, we can do that. So throw, throw cold water on, I don't expect any, any changes, but obviously, Medicaid, Medicare is eating our lunch for the state of Texas, yeah. state of Kansas, every, every other state and the nation. Uh, because It's an entitlement mentality, but you could actually switch it around, put some proper incentives in there and personal responsibility, and you could really make some changes. They found out in the state of Kansas, actually, if you do require work, They go to work! And they're better off than they were before. There's actually studies out there that show that comparing someone who has no insurance to someone that's on Medicaid, no health insurance. Again, no health insurance is not no health care. Don't let the left tell us that. That's the difference. Uh, You're healthier when you have no insurance rather than being on Medicaid. Now that's just a study or two, but that's just a, a shameful indictment that people in this room that we haven't changed the system to make it work better yeah. for those that frankly can't afford so. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for your work on the FDA project. We, we look forward to helping out. Would you throw the same cold water on entitlement reforms that will be,
1: possibly be in the farm bill next summer? Hmm, yeah, that's a... Yeah, I'm not sure what entitlement reforms they'd even propose in there. I was in the committee until I lost my job in that committee, (laughs) (laughs) which, by the way, that's what you do when you try to reform a few entitlements in the Farm Bill. You stand up and say, you know what, I I think here was my mortal sin uh, is that I went on the House floor and offered a very controversial amendment, which said if you want to receive food stamps, you should work. (laughs) You're heartless. And that was going to break up the whole grand coalition of food stamps. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that failed. Okay. That failed. We got about 200 votes. So every Democrat, but a couple of them voted no. I get that. The problem was the leadership of the Ag Committee and the Speaker of the House and uh, and others said, no, we can't do that. Well, that's the problem. Where Republicans say they're for work which is a good, wholesome thing that builds up individuals, builds up families, and makes them more wealthy. And, uh, and and then we have Republicans say, well, we can't do that now. And so that'll be the debate again. So my hope is that'll be part, that'll be the, the, the way that they could bring some uh, food stamp reforms. But don't forget, we've got, you know, what, literally 200 entitlement programs that are based on income, and that's just, one of them, uh, that they, they had this, uh, this requirement. So, but under the Trump administration, they're allowing states to come in and get on Medicaid. Uh, but uh, state of Wisconsin, by the way, kudos to the governor and, and the uh, state legislature that passed a requirement. They said, you're going to have to work. In our state for Medicaid, even if the feds don't allow us to do that, we're starting on January 1st. And we're not ma- waiting anymore on Washington. So, kudos to, to Governor Walker for doing that in the legislature. So, every state could do that. No, no need to wait. Just put the pressure on. And, uh, and I'm not saying... I'm not, I, I think the President's for that, but don't forget there's literally thousands of people below them that have been there for a long time that may not want to make those changes. Some, sometimes we have to promote some things, maybe with 140 characters promote them up to maybe the president will, will see them and get past the, sure. the, the swamp that surrounds him on every side. Well, <clears throat> just to
0: be clear, I, I'm not really decrying his presence on Twitter. I'm no. grateful just before we started our session for a particular set of 140 characters in which he has removed
1: the concept of climate change from national security policy. <laughs> okay. Yay! And I'll tell you internally, and Heartland's been very active on that, our founder mm-hmm. or our CEO for CO, Joe Bast, been working on this for years. And, but again, Al Gore lost in what year? That was the, almost the last century. He lost in 2000. His hearings in the late 90s to claim CO2 killed us all is the basis of, mm-hmm. of almost every environmental change related to the, the climate. It's called the endangerment finding. And uh, it's still going on working pushing back, but it was the president himself mm-hmm. This says, no, we're gonna get out of Paris. We don't, why would we go to Paris and still be there? And so he stood up, and it was very controversial, even amongst his family members, from what I've heard. And, uh, but uh, for people out there hoping and thinking America's gonna go back and join the UN and, and go into Paris, that's not gonna happen. You go, there's a big picture right inside the White House. You come in the entrance, first thing you see where I walk in a, a few times is that picture of him so proud of doing that. So you've gotta have people like that that are able and willing to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I think is right. And we need more of that. Again, I don't agree with everything he does, but uh, it's so refreshing and so frightening in Washington Mm -hmm. to those folks that, oh, my gosh, he might actually do what he said he's going to do. Yeah. And uh, just a a pretty normal American concept that is often lost in Washington. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. Well, you've been kind in this conversation. I want to be kind to our audience members as well,
0: give you the opportunity to ask some questions. So you know what is now called the Roberts Rule at TPPF. Please phrase your short comment in the form of a question. And we will have some folks come around, I believe, with microphones. Yes, indeed. Thank you, sir. Raise your hand, and we'll take your question. Yes, ma'am.
1: Hi, thank you for being here today. Um, Regarding your comments on the FDA's drug approval process, what do you think the likelihood of the Right to Try initiative getting through under Trump is, and what do you think about that initiative as a whole? Well, thank you for the leadership uh, here in Texas and the foundation working with that. Uh, We work with the Goldwater Institute on many issues, and uh, Naomi, that works at Goldwater was uh, at our meeting yesterday. I think that's the foundation for some long-term FDA reform, it's such a small piece of that. But uh, when you have uh, doctors, and particularly in the state of Kansas, willing to say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to choose my patients over over the FDA," that that's courageous. And there are real difficulties with doing that, and there's real difficulties with states. So, but 38 states, I think, is the number today, said uh, we don't want the feds restricting our ability to, to pick a medicine down the hallway. Think about this. Here's what's going on: you you have trials going on, and uh, with uh, perhaps life-saving, life-affirming. Drugs, uh, if you get in the trial, by the way, think about it. If you get in the trial, you get a 50% chance you get the drug, and 50% chance you don't. All, we, all the state of Texas was asking, well, let a doctor decide whether the patient, another patient should have that. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen to answer your question. It went through the Senate, seems to be stuck in the House. The FDA uh, is uh, still seems to be pushing back a little bit, but we do have Scott Gottlieb as commissioner there. And, uh, and uh, so we're still trying to figure out, and that was part of the discussion. So, but I think it leads to real long-term reform involving many other drugs. I mean, my goodness, we use our iPhone for how many things? Can you imagine how we can incorporate technology? Here's one other thing came up yesterday at our conference. Can you imagine, you know, there's some side effects to aspirin, you know, people die from aspirin. Can you imagine if the FDA would approve that today? Think about that, I don't think they would at all. Because they can't guarantee almost it's 100% safe, you know. And right to try, uh, uh, Louis Gohmert's uh, a friend of mine. I think it was Louis' story, and maybe it's another congressman from Arizona. But uh, of uh, 34 children with leukemia, and they're dying, and there's a drug that saved lives of 33 of them, and the 34th one died. So the FDA says, well, we can't have that drug. Right. We can't. And those are the kind of things they have. Bureaucrats shouldn't be making those decisions. I think so. Right to try is a, a good start. But uh, I'm still worried whether that that happens. It will take some time. Here's one thing that should frighten you. We had soldiers, and I didn't learn this until yesterday, were dying on the battlefield because the FDA would not allow the use of freeze-dried plasma for soldiers when they were bleeding out. And so the military basically has to follow the rules as well. Uh, They were getting some from France, and that became a blow-up. Again, if our soldiers are dying because the FDA won't, include, won't approve a product that's used in France, shouldn't there be some real public outcry? So we're identifying multiple instances like this where people should be back in charge. And so I'm hopeful. So appreciate the work here in Texas uh, pushing that forward, the work of the, the Goldwater Institute on, on right. right to Try. Thanks for your question. Second row down here, Bonham. Well, <coughs> Microphone's coming your way.
2: Course, as a physician, uh, what you say strikes me pretty strongly because of the liability issue. And so, who takes the liability when you decide to allow a drug to be used generally uh, yeah. without what some people consider to be sufficient testing? And, you know, I hark back to when I started medical school. I've started, done my thing, and retired. But in '68, when, we, when I was in medical school, focal melia. Was a big deal. You're born without arms, part of the leg, that sort of thing. And guess what? It was thalidomide. And um, mm. so, <clears throat> I can just imagine the, how much fun the attorneys are going to have as soon as you start releasing drug, uh, drugs early, because the American public in the nanny state doesn't want to take responsibility. It's got to be that gas fault. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and then you and then you've got the pharmacy cartel.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, the, the right to try and any serious FDA, FDA reform has to have tort. Tort reform is part of that. That's when you also have to rely on states like Texas and Kansas. By the way, we've had probably the best tort laws in Kansas for, for many years. And, and, and Texas actually on that one caught up with us a few years ago, I think, on that. So, But that has to be part of it as well. But here's the decision, though. And, and under right to try, it's drugs that actually have are generally, I think, already in phase three. Uh, and FDA reform would suggest phase one, maybe phase one A and B, and they, they uh, make this pretty complicated. I understand it has to be complicated, but uh, what I'm suggesting, once they pass the the, the initial safety trials, th- then we should, uh, you know, let patients and their doctors start saying, hey, you know what, what is really out there? And uh, some people, at times make bad decisions. Some people are more risky than than others. But here's what FDA doesn't see. And I, as a member of Congress, I know FDA does not want to be called before a hearing and, and say, uh, the unborn were born with, without limbs. By the way, that didn't happen here, that was in Europe. So that, that didn't happen here, that was in Europe. And uh, the drug was not approved for use here. Advise, um, women? Only in trials. The FDA had not had not approved that yet. Now I don't know if that was after, but uh, you know, they, President Kennedy gave the gal who held that up on accident, given her an award for keeping that from coming over. And that's why he had to rewrite all that. So, but here's what the FDA doesn't see: is all the folks that are dying because they can't get access to the drugs. Now Biox, you know, the people were dying as well. They call in, we'll rip that off the off the off the market, and, and that's what you see. The what is it? Forty thousand died from that, and I, I don't know if that's the accurate number, it's number I saw yesterday, but there were actually folks using Viox still wish they could use it today, but they're not permitted, they're not in the high-risk category. So all we're suggesting in, in this case is we look at uh, that letting <coughs> folks decide, not Washington to, to, to do that. So, but that's part of the question we wrestled with yesterday, do we need to spend $2.6 billion to, re, you know, to get the 99.9% Safety? I, I, I don't think so. Well,
2: I, I understand. I used to boot a medicine in from Germany, Holland, <laughs> and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah.
1: and,
2: and then had to sign 15 pages of you know, disclaimer, yeah. which, of course, would have been useless in the
0: so Dr. Jen, it's good we did not get your comment about bootlegging medicine on the microphone. First, statute statute limitation. <laughs> Gentlemen, right there in the center, uh, Ben will come around to you, yes sir. <clears throat> yeah, on another topic really having to do with higher education, I was on the board of college for, five, for
2: nine years and uh, what I saw was increases never unuring to the benefit of the student, I saw
0: more rapidly, higher education costs going up even than medical costs, uh, and it just meant more administrators and more other things for the college. It didn't inert nothing in to the student. What are what do you see? How does how? What's a solution that results in something
1: benefiting the consumer? Well, I, you yeah. know. Parents make all kinds of decisions for where my daughter's going to school, for example. I think parents and uh, alumni need to do a better job of uh, holding uh, schools accountable. And I think my daughter's going to a really good school, but uh, does it really have to cost that much? Why is that? What are they doing? The same thing with K through 12. I mean, the, the administrative overhead just goes up and up and up, and, uh, but uh, in higher ed, it's interesting. And that's uh, kind of a challenge to us as uh, conservatives. It's like, well, we have a lot more choice in the higher ed, so why do we still have this overhead problem? What can we do about it? And, and I think partly we can blame it on the Washington mandates. Uh, but uh, the other thing we, you know, what's frustrating to me is, uh, in arenas, is on a, a, a related issue, is we have a lot of folks, uh, baby boomers retiring, and, and they're willing a lot of money to colleges and universities that aren't the schools they went to when they were, ke- when they were in college and are far left. And so I would encourage the foundation to say, hey, give the money to the TPPF rather than a university that doesn't support <laughs> the <you>. values. <laughs> and we see, we see that happening again and again. And so, but we as as parents, I'll say this for a kid, I got uh, you know, two college age and two coming, is we've gotta be more challenging. You know, why should, why should the price have doubled, you know, uh, in the last decade, whatever the number is. By the way, the uh, the cost, uh, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner says the cost of giving getting a du- drug through the process has gone up 145 percent in the last 10 years. We can do better, and I'm not sure higher ed might be pretty darn close to that as well. Kevin, yeah, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Microphone's coming your way.
3: Uh, You've described very well a broken two-party system. So I ask you, given that, do you see any realignments of the political landscape? And I'll tell you why, what I see. I heard a radio talk show caller talk about the Democrat uh, governor's, uh, Virginia governor's race. He was a conservative Republican. He said he voted... against the Republican nominee, I don't know if he said he actually voted for the Democrat or not, but his reason was he was on different sides, and these two sides in the Republican Party, I call it the swamp drainers and the swamp dwellers, and the swamp dweller was the nominee, and he did not want that person to win and seem to be successful so that his party would go down that track. Then in the recent... um, Alabama Senate race, I heard a similar thing where the swamp dwellers in the Republican Party wanted to vote against their nominee actually for the Democrat, because they did not want him to win and be the face and that side of the Republican Party. So this tension, I say, is unsustainable, and it only leads to Democrat victories, because they don't have this tension in their party. I'm a Libertarian, so I'm trying to be, I think I can be objective here, but the, the, the Democrats don't do this to themselves. Whatever differences they had, they would never think to, to vote for the Republican against their nominee, and, uh, and so I see this as uh, repeating itself with bad results because the swamp dwellers fight mean. They fight dirty. The swamp drainers just don't have that in them. So they're going to continue to lose. So what, what's the answer? I think it may be a third party.
0: So your question for, from kind of a, maybe an academic standpoint, because I don't think we'll get into the, the partisan side of that, is if there will be a realignment more along the lines of what you're calling swamp drainers and swamp dwellers. Dr. Hulskamp? Yeah.
1: Yeah. From an academic perspective, and I've been to a couple of conventions and they weren't the Democrat or the Libertarian Convention. And, uh, but uh, what we've seen in the history of this country is the greatest social movements usually were picked up by one or two parties. You know, and so I, I think you potentially see alignment of when you have a president that is so populist in nature. I think that's the best way to put that, that you know, uh, it, it's a danger for, for folks to oppose him. And, but Republicans, some of them are doing that. So it's hard to predict where it ends up politically. But I think this overgrowing, ever-growing concern that, America, that those guys and gals aren't working for us. I mean, you see it in both parties. You know, you had these rallies of a guy Mr. Sanders, who spent, who do they say, he spent his honeymoon in the Soviet Union? And all these students showing up and saying, he's our guy? You know, and because, and there's, but I would, I would argue that uh, there's as much disruption going on in their party as well. Over all, all kinds of issues. And it's, you know, they want them to do all kinds of things. Uh, and, and they're, they're not falling through. I mean, they, you know, there's a whole contingent of folks in the Democrat Party that want to peach Donald Trump. The vote didn't didn't. I can't even get a, a few to stand up and do that. So, I mean, this is, it, it keeps moving from, but, but the, the issue, the social issue, if you look at like the issue of slavery, uh, you know, did one party solve that? Eventually it's, it was pulled in uh, by a major party and, and all kinds of things and uh, people making a difference and, and, and we went the, the right, right direction as a country, thank God. Uh, but uh, it, that, that caused a realignment, but the same parties were, were still there. And uh, so I would suggest, I don't see a big change there, but we have a big change in, in the states where we have this opportunity. So I think you could have some states become bluer and bluer, and, and some states more and more red. But uh, I wanted, there was a survey came out I wanted to share. It just uh, shows that the division in the parties as well as the division uh, uh, of between the parties, and it's a, a group in, in Washington, I think American Principles Project might be involved in, put out a survey that said of uh, the top five pay- patriotic brands for conservatives. Here's the top five. NRA, Chick-fil-A, thanks for lunch, <laughs> Republican Party, Fox News, and Hobby Lobby are the top five views of who's patriotic. Now here's the top five patriotic brands for liberals. The Democrat Party, the U.S. Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood, New York Times, and the NFL. <laughs>
0: I think I'll stick with Chick-fil-A.
1: Yeah. Now, now think about that. Think about the divisions we have between the parties and in America. We can't even agree anymore on what in the study is, and there's more coming, we can't even agree what it means to be a patriot anymore. What it means to, to what's federalism? Who cares is the answer. You know, what does it mean, uh, you know, today is Bill Wright's Day. Today is Bill Wright's Day, 76 years ago a Democrat president. Think about that, it said it was Bill of Rights Day. And uh, and most folks, obviously, don't know what it is, and frankly, they, they think they do, but they don't care about it. So uh, there's incredible divisions, but at the end of the day, I'll just say politics is not gonna change that. It's a cultural issue, it's issues of the heart that are gonna change and, and pull us back together, I think.
0: Thank you. Time for one final question. We'll go to, you're on the left side of the room, but you're on our right, so we're comfortable <laughs> going that direction.
1: Well, I hate being the last question to go back to a rather mundane topic. but Make it a good one. What is preventing the normal order of business budgeting in the Congress? We used to have authorizations and appropriations and now this sort of rolling budgeting by CR. Hmm. And then I guess question my premise. Should we, were those days of authorizations and appropriations, were those better in terms of oversight, federalism, accountability? They were, but uh, those days were from the early 90s was the last time that really happened. What's frustrating to me is you had Republicans for years say, well, they can't get it done. We can't get, you know, wait a minute. Republicans have everything in Washington. And they still can't get it done. So you can't, it's hard to blame Barack Obama anymore. And so, but the biggest value of having a a steady process and and a process in which you'd go through the budget of every agency or the 13 parts of the pie, then you could hold the bureaucrats accountable with amendments of restricting their action. And so so maybe the Republicans don't care to do that anymore. So yeah, I mean, they didn't pass any budget. They didn't pass any budget bills. How does that happen? You have to say it's the folks that are in charge. It's Republicans on both sides. They've got the votes to do that. They have chosen not to. Uh, the fear, specific fear, is the reason they didn't finish it two weeks ago is because they want to load it up some really bad things at the end of the year. And uh, that's, that's uh, if it uh, passes any predictor of the future, that's it's likely to be a very bad last week of December after we have a, a good tax reform. So, but yeah, from an academic and a political perspective, do your job. And uh, so you've got you to hand it to the, the leadership on both sides. They just, they just don't care to do their job as a member of Congress. So again, that frustrates me because they would have more authority as an institution if they followed their process. And uh, but they either can't get it together or, even worse, might not want to get it together.
0: Dr. Tim Huleskamp, President of the Heartland Institute, you're a great American and honorary Texan. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all for being with us. I know a few of you had some more questions. You know, custom here is, is great hospitality. So I'm sure the Dr. Hills camp has a few more minutes if you have questions. Have a wonderful weekend and Merry Christmas to you. Thanks again for being part of the Foundation Podcast, which is sponsored and produced by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Visit us at texaspolicy.com to learn more.